You know, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized multiple times, the last time in 2006, and it was bipartisan. It was a unanimous vote in the Senate and a near unanimous vote in the House. Since then, our country has become so polarized and voting has become a partisan issue. And, you know, our organizations are really trying to break that down and, and make sure that people understand that this is a fundamental issue about voter participation. And unfortunately, a lot of states are now in their legislative sessions. We're seeing even more voter suppression bills, even more bills aiming to restrict voter access than we've seen before. Hi, everybody. This is Janice Abera. We're going to do another episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality. While the 2020 election saw an unprecedented voter turnout, the fight to end voter suppression and discrimination unfortunately rages on. So today we have the great benefit of having Lee Chapman with us. She's going to talk about all of that and the Voting Rights Acts that are now pending before Congress. One of them is the For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1, which has key measures to modernize our elections. And the other one is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, also known as H.R. 4, which addresses DOJ's ability to enforce voting rights in jurisdictions with a history of discrimination. Lee is the Senior Director of the Voting Rights Program for the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights, which is a coalition of over 200 national organizations that share the goal of a more open and just society. Lee has also been a Senior Policy Advisor at Let America Vote, and she was the Director of Policy for Pennsylvania's Department of State under Governor Tom Wolfe. She graduated from the University of Virginia and Howard University Law School. I am so happy to have Lee here today because she has a lot of experience with voting rights and she's going to help us to understand these pending bills, how they can benefit us if they get passed, and what we can do to help it happen. So I'm really excited to have her. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. How are you this morning? Well, it's morning here. It's afternoon where you are. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we are so excited to talk to one of the people who actually worked on the Shelby versus Holder case. Looking forward to that very much. In anticipation of our talk, though, I want to do a bit of a background on some of the statistical bits of information that we have about the 2020 presidential election. You know, it gives you kind of an idea of how complicated our decentralized system really is. There were 10,000 elections conducted around the country. We had 150. 52 million plus ballots cast, 52 separate legal codes that regulate those elections, which kind of makes each situation slightly different. There are 70 different models of voting machines that were used in the presidential election in 2020. So we have a very much of a decentralized system. There's pros and cons to our decentralized system. One is that election tampering is going to be minimized by the decentralization. Having worked for the United States government for 23 years, I can tell you it's really hard to get coordinated efforts. But um, there's also some, you know, some difficulties about having a decentralized system, and that's we have no uniform national standards. So state and local governments do kind of their own thing within a, a range. And part of that, I think, is that people in those various jurisdictions handle their districting differently. 
And we've had a certain amount of success in using Department of Justice's pre-clearance provisions to keep those district lines and the drawing of district lines within a, a certain range of acceptability. And then that got turned on its head in 2013 with the Supreme Court holding in Shelby versus Holder, which I know that you have some pretty serious background with. Can you tell us about your experience with that case? Sure. So I actually did not work on Shelby County versus Holder, but I've worked on the legislative efforts since that case, since the gutting of the Voting Rights Act to really get it restored. But I wanted to go back first to your point about the 2020 election. You were right about, you know, we have over 10,000 election jurisdictions in our country and elections are decentralized. But, you know, Voter suppression and barriers to the ballot box are still a very real problem in our country. And, you know, as we saw in the, during the 2020 elections, there were voters in states like Georgia who had to stand in line for over 10 hours just to cast their ballot. And there's no reason why voters should have to stand in these long lines in some states. And in other states, it's, it's very easy to vote. Voters just, you know, walk in and, and can cast their ballot. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, it's 2020. You know, the world has changed a lot since the, the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And while it has, you know, voter suppression and barriers to the ballot box are still very real in our country. And they've taken different forms instead of, you know, the literacy tests. You know, we're now seeing things like strict voter ID laws and purges from the voter rolls and these hours long lines to vote. And the 2020 presidential election was really interesting because Although we saw the highest turnout we've seen in over a century, there were the most lawsuits that we've ever seen. There were over 300 lawsuits that were filed just during the for the election last year. And a lot of it had to do with the pandemic and advocacy organizations like the Leadership Conference and our coalition partners are really pushing to make sure that voters had every means to cast their ballot during a pandemic. So whether that was by mail or through early voting, we were really trying to make it easier and lessen the burdens and restrictions that voters face at the polling place, which is why we saw so many lawsuits um, last year. So, you know, a lot of states have made some strides with implementing policies to, to increase access. We have seen quite a bit of voter suppression. And that's why we're pushing at the federal level to make sure that there's more national standards when it comes to voting. Well, here in Oregon, um, you know, I'm, I'm a uh, Louisiana ex, expat here in Oregon, moved here in 2012. And when I went to get my driver's license, you know, having experienced the difficulties that Louisiana has with voter suppression and, and kind of trying to control the outcome of elections by having some influence over who's actually showing up at the polls. So when I get in the DMV in Oregon, they asked me if I want to be registered to vote. And I'm like, really? Of course, sure. And then the, the description of the candidates and the issues that are going to be on the ballot comes in the mail. Your ballot comes in the mail. You have time to sit down and drink a glass of wine and discuss the issues with family and friends. And you do your ballot, you put it in the mail. And this year, they actually provided the, the postage. You didn't even have to put a stamp on it. It could not have been more efficient and comfortable to vote. I was so pleasantly surprised. And now Senator Wyden and Representative Blumenauer have introduced a bill, I think um, January 28th. It's called the Vote at Home Bill, 
And they're absolutely proposing that what Oregonians get to enjoy in in terms of mail-in voting, that every state gets to have that same opportunity. You know, if people have concerns about the veracity and the validity of it, we need to address their concerns and make sure that it's a secure election process. But boy, is it convenient. One of the things I had written down that I, I, I picked up, actually, I picked it up from an amicus brief that you guys at the leadership conference um, filed in a recent Supreme Court case. And this is, a, this is a paraphrase of it, but you guys said, democracies are fragile. Society relies upon voter participation to mediate political disagreements. I mean, it's just fundamental. That is the core of how our society works. You know, our democracy works best when more people can participate, and that's what we're really trying to get behind. And one of the major priorities for the leadership conference, this Congress, is for the People Act, which is H.R. 1 and also S. 1 in the Senate. And that bill is really important because it's transformative and it would really put government back in the hands of the people. And it has three main pillars. One of them is voting rights reform, you know, creating national standards, ethics reform, and also campaign finance reform. And at the leadership conference, we've actually been focused on the voting rights provisions of this bill. And most of the voting provisions actually came from John Lewis's, the late Congressman Lewis's Voter Empowerment Act, which he championed for many, many years in Congress. So this bill would create national automatic voter registration, which would register over 50 million people in our country. It would have same-day voter registration. They would end felony disenfranchisement laws, which we know are really a vestige of Jim Crow and were designed to make it hard for African-Americans to vote. You know, it would make it easier to vote by mail. It would mandate the prepaid postage, like you were saying, like you have in, in Oregon. It would require at least two weeks of early in-person voting, including on the weekends. So you mentioned you were able to vote by mail at home. You didn't have to stand in line. You know, in some states like South Carolina, you had to have a witness actually sign your vote by mail ballot. And my aunt lives in South Carolina. You know, she's she's in her 70s. She's blind, actually. She lives alone and she's at high risk for, for contracting COVID. And she was very concerned about having to have a witness sign her ballot. Um, so this bill really tries to aim to eliminate a lot of those undue burdens, needless barriers to the ballot to make sure that everyone can participate, that we can have the most robust democracy that we can in our country. It really is kind of arcane, the process that some states make their citizens go through in order to vote. I mean, at some point, it just becomes so clearly voter suppression that somebody needs to to stand up and call it that. When certain jurisdictions make it so very difficult for citizens to register their vote, when it, when it's a fundamental tenet of how our society even functions. So what's happening with the bill that's pending about um, reinstating some of the provisions of the original Voting Rights Act. You were talking about John Lewis and restoring war with the Voting Rights Act. So how are we going to get that accomplished? H.R. 1, which I just spoke about, really expands access to the ballot. You know, it, it, it provides election modernization to make voting more convenient and easier for, for voters. But another priority of our organization is a bill called H.R. 4, which is was recently renamed the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. 
And that bill um, aims to end racial discrimination in the voting process. You know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed after years of struggle in the civil rights movement. And I, you know, I talked about how, you know, many states around the country had restrictions on the right to vote. You know, there was rampant voter intimidation at the polling place. There were literacy tests. You know, in some jurisdictions, people had to count how many jelly beans were in a jar, how many bubbles were in a bar of soap before they could even register to vote. It was, you know, blatant discrimination against voters of color. And so the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was was passed to eliminate that, to make it so voters of color could cast their ballot without these um, these burdens. One key part of that bill is Section 5. So um, there was a formula, which is Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which looked at all of the states and jurisdictions that were the worst offenders throughout history. Um, and those states and jurisdictions, many of them are in the South, not all of them, had to have the, any voting change approved by either the Department of Justice or a federal court in D.C. So whether that was implementing a voting change like a, a photo ID law or moving a polling place, that had to be approved and the government would basically take a look at it and see if it discriminated against voters of color. If it did, it wasn't allowed to go into effect. It's called the preclearance provision and it stopped discriminatory bills and laws and policies from going into effect, countless laws and policies. But in 2013, five justices of the United States Supreme Court actually gutted Section 5. They said that it was based on old data. It was based on data from 1965. Um, you know, the world has changed. They did acknowledge that racial discrimination in voting still exists, but they really put it into the hands of Congress to create a new formula that was responsive to current conditions, to more recent history of voter discrimination. And so that's what the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act does, HR4. It aims to restore the heart of the Voting Rights Act, restore that, that Section 5 preclearance formula, and it modernizes it by going back 25 years. So it looks at the last 25 years of voting rights violations and those states that have a significant amount of lawsuits or other infractions like settlements, what have you, would have to, to have their voting changes pre-cleared. You know, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized multiple times, the last time in 2006, and it was bipartisan. It was a unanimous vote in the Senate and a near unanimous vote in the House. But unfortunately, since then, our country has become so polarized and voting has become a partisan issue. And, you know, our organizations are really trying to break that down and, and make sure that people understand that this is a fundamental issue about voter participation. But I say all that to say that we are, you know, working to get this bill passed because it's critical that we have reforms like automatic voter registration, same day registration, the reforms that are in HR1. But at the same time, we're preventing voter discrimination um, that we're seeing around this country. And unfortunately, a lot of states are now in their legislative sessions. We're seeing even more voter suppression bills, even more bills aiming to restrict voter access than we've seen before. When I was at DOJ, well, I, you know, as an assistant U.S. attorney, it was not within the litigating divisions of 
the department, either the Civil Rights Division or any of the U.S. Attorney's offices, to deal with those pre-clearance issues. Usually, if a jurisdiction wanted to change district lines or something, that's generally what they were doing with the pre-clearance process would, would be, say, our, our population changed or things have changed in our landscape and we need to redraw district lines, there is a, a mapping division within the department that um, would take the proposed maps with the new lines and look at the population and see whether or not um, there was an adverse impact on people of color. Uh, and then they would make suggestions on, oh, just move this line this way and your population, which has shifted, you can have a, a better distribution. So that process just was kind of like, I want to say on automatic pilot. And the folks at DOJ were absolute experts with those maps and the population data. It was pretty technical and it just was a smooth running machine. So I'm really sad that that got stopped because of, you know, because the formula was wrong. And I mean, it, it, the formula was limited is the way I think of it, that, you know, like if a, you had a safety inspector come into your home and say, oh, your fire alarms um, work some of the time, but not all of the time, but we're going to take them all down and good luck finding some more efficient fire alarms. But now you have none. Does H.R. 4, you know, are we hopeful that H.R. 4 is going to give us a formula that can put us back to where we were doing that kind of work with the preclearance um, section at DOJ? Yes, we're definitely hopeful that um, it will. And one thing that our coalition and the voting rights litigation organizations and other experts are going to be doing is there, there will be hearings in the House and in the Senate to really document the recent history of voter suppression. We, we did this last Congress, but we're going to do it again to make sure that we have a strong, robust evidentiary record that informs and supports the new formula. You know, with the Democratic majority in the House, you know, we're hopeful it will pass there. Now we are working to um, obtain bipartisan support in the, in the Senate. Senator Murkowski has sponsored the legislation in the past. We're hopeful she will do that again. She's a Republican from Alaska. As we all know, the Native American population really suffers from rampant voter suppression um, throughout the country. So we are working with our coalition to really show that this is something that both Republicans and Democrats can support. Let's talk about at-large elections. I was trying to explain this to someone who is not a lawyer the other day. And what I said to them was, if you have a minority population within a district where all officials are elected district-wide, as in at-large, their vote is always diluted by the majority. You can give them a voice by drawing single member districts within the larger district. The same number of officials are elected, but each small section of the district gets representation. So they get to have their voices heard on decisions that are being made that affect the district. I, uh, at one point in my career, I worked on an at-large election, uh, a case with the Department of Justice. This was in Louisiana, we got a complaint that there was an at-large district in a town, in fact, the town that my mother grew up in. So I was very familiar with the town and I knew a lot of the people. So uh, I knew that they had a fairly large population of people of color. And turns out they had never um, they had never elected any one of their representatives to the city council. So, you know, as a native, really, it was fairly easy for me to knock on the door of the mayor and say, hey, mayor, this impacts some of your constituents in a negative way. And we, Department of Justice, um, 
we don't want you to have an at-large district. And he's like, well, what do we do? And I, you know, how do you feel about single member districts? That's the remedy for this. And he's like, sure, let's redraw it. Let's work on it. So we worked together. We came up with a consent decree, got the federal judge to sign off on it, and got it over to the Secretary of State of Louisiana in time for the next coming up election. It all went so smoothly, you know, people working together to get a fair outcome so that everybody can have their voices heard. It was great. And I'm wondering, are there still at-large districts out there that are adversely impacting representation? Uh, And does one of these pending bills deal with that as well? Yeah, there's definitely still at-large districts out there. And one thing um, that I didn't mention is there are really two formulas in HR4. One is the geographic coverage formula that I spoke about, which looks at you know states and jurisdictions and their bad actions over the last 25 years. There's another really innovative piece of HR4, and that's the known practices coverage formula. So that actually has a potential for nationwide coverage if jurisdictions implement policies that are known to discriminate in areas with large communities of color. So for instance, moving from a multi-member district to an at-large district is one of those known practices that there's evidence that that's known to discriminate. Closing and consolidating polling places, that's another known practice. One that was added last Congress was voter purges. We've seen that, that's another known practice. And this is really important because I think when people think of what states could and could not be covered, it's you know the te- it's Texas and Georgia. We know that those are known offenders, but they're voting issues all around the country. We see it in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. This is a really dynamic part of the bill that could capture jurisdictions all across the country. So you and I have someone in common that we've worked with, Vanita Gupta. Vanita and I worked on the Portland Police Bureau case um, when she was at DOJ. And I recently learned that she also worked on the juvenile justice case that I worked on in Louisiana. There's, It's a small world in civil rights, really. But we are really proud that she's now going to be the Associate Attorney General over Civil Rights. What's going to happen at the Leadership Conference without our dear Vanita Gupta? Oh, I know. We're so proud of her, you know, that she um, was nominated by President Biden for this important role, Associate Attorney General. We're honored that she is going to be in the Department of Justice. You know, we need advocates like her that um, understand civil rights law. You know, she formerly ran the Civil Rights Division at the United States Department of Justice before coming to the Leadership Conference. And she really has worked tirelessly over the last four years, just pushing back on all of the rollbacks that we've seen in our country with civil rights. She's a hero. She really is. And there are more heroes in our lives. You have a Beyonce connection. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't met Beyonce, but I have met someone related to her. I think you've met the mother of dragons. So tell us about Tina Knowles Lawson and what was your experience with her? So we actually launched um, a campaign called And Still I Vote um, last year at the Leadership Conference. And we launched it in Selma, Alabama on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And it was really to um, mobilize voters around stopping voter suppression and, and getting people to participate in the 2020 elections. So throughout last year, we had a campaign that was all planned out. We were going to go all around the country with different influencers and really try to work on getting out the vote. Um, but then COVID hit. 
And so we had to recalibrate and, and figure out how we were going to engage the public, you know, through a virtual space. And also at that time, we realized that, you know, voters needed more options to vote, you know, in, in states that only allowed in-person voting. We, we couldn't risk people contracting COVID-19. We couldn't have a repeat of what happened during the Wisconsin primaries. So states were in a dire need for additional funding so they could increase vote by mail, so they could have more early voting where people could safely social distance. And Tina Knowles Lawson, who's Beyonce's mother, actually worked very closely with us. She was able to get over 20 of her other celebrity friends and the mothers of the movement. So those mothers who have lost their sons and daughters to police violence, like Trayvon Martin's mom and Michael Brown's mother, to write a letter to Congressman Schumer and McConnell, basically saying that in order for us to have a democracy, more people need to participate. In order for us to make change when it comes to ending police violence, to reform the criminal justice system, people need to vote. In order for people to vote during this pandemic, states need funds to administer elections so voters can cast their ballots safely during the pandemic. So she really did something that other people haven't done. She made that connection between voting, getting funding to states, and the change that we want to see in our country. Um, so we, you know, did a media tour. We were on The Daily Show together, and we really elevated the issue. We were trying to get $3.6 billion to states. Unfortunately, we were only able to get $400 million in the first CARES package, the first stimulus bill. But it was a huge, it made a huge difference. Um, and as a result, you know, some companies actually stepped up. We saw foundations step up and also administer and, and allocate funds to states where the government, unfortunately, wasn't able to. But um, that was a, a great campaign, and it's important that we make the connection between voting and the change that we want to see when it comes to different policies like policing and criminal justice reform. It's impressive. I mean, people can really make a difference when they step up, um, even, you know, celebrities. But I'll tell you what, if you can raise a child to be Beyonce, you can definitely. <laughs> got some feel. And she... <laughs> And she also had Beyonce, Beyonce posted the letter on her Instagram. We didn't even know that was going to happen. And we were like, oh, which, and you know, the letter linked to a petition for, for people to sign. So we were so happy that she really utilized her network um, to mobilize for this issue. Oh, for sure. I mean, she's definitely using her platform to make a difference as well. Some great ethics in that family uh, and must be in yours too, because you, you're, you're out there doing, um, all of this public service uh, for a nonprofit. I'm really proud to to know you and to see your work. And you, you've you've been on a, a straight line path with voting rights. It's quite impressively. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think you know I I went to Howard Law School, and I you know that's the school where Thurgood Marshall um, graduated from, and it has such a rich civil rights and social justice history. And so I knew I always wanted to work in civil rights, but I really think the defining moment for me was when I worked for a nonprofit um, racial justice organization called Advancement Project. They're actually a member of the leadership conference in our coalition. And I was part of the team that sued the state of Wisconsin over their discriminatory voter ID law. I was a very junior lawyer, I think only three years out of law school at the time. And my um, responsibility was to find the witnesses for the case. So I was going to church basements, meal programs, just talking to people who wanted to vote, who had voted for years, but because of Wisconsin's voter ID law, 
they weren't able to because they didn't have a birth certificate or they didn't have the funds to obtain an ID. I had a witness on, and I put on the stand in that case, she was 94 years old. She was born at home to a midwife in Mississippi, never had a birth certificate because they didn't give birth certificates back then. Instead, they recorded, you know, your, your name in a family Bible. And then she moved to uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin during the Great Migration when African-Americans were moving from the South to the North for better opportunities. She'd been a poll worker. She voted in every election and she was in her 90s. She didn't drive, didn't have a license. And her daughter actually had to spend $2,000. She had to hire a lawyer so she could actually get a birth certificate to get the ID. Now she, you know, her daughter was dedicated and knew how much voting meant to her. So she was able to get her that. But how many people can afford $2,000 in legal fees just to, to be, be able to vote? So that was really the turning point in my life where I definitely wanted to dedicate my career to um, working to make sure that we're fighting voter suppression and expanding access to the ballot. Well, you know, if you ever feel like you're not making an impact, call me up because I'll tell you, it's vitally important, the work that you're doing. And so many of us who don't have the um, ability to dedicate so much time and their careers to, to doing what you do, we really appreciate what you're doing because it helps all of us. It helps keep our country glued together. Thank you so very much. I'm really, truly grateful for your work, and I'm grateful that you agreed to speak with us today. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. And Gabrielle Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann. I'm Janice Abair. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>